This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Gordon Bethune, the former CEO of Continental Airlines. How many ex-mechanics are the CEO of Major Airlines? Right. None, none, <laughs> right. right? So right. my mechanics identified with me, and I showed or epitomized what they could be if they wanted. So there was nothing wrong inherently about being a mechanic. If you wanted to be the CEO, you could do it. And of course, flying the airplane kind of lets you identify with your own pilots who have that same type and they know you know. How a young Navy mechanic fixed an entire airline that was coming out of bankruptcy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's the hand of cards Gordon Bethune was dealt when he joined Continental Airlines in 1994. At the time, Continental ranked last in on-time arrivals, last in customer service satisfaction, and first in lost luggage. Over the previous decade, the company had seen a revolving door of CEOs, and it had been through two bankruptcies and was headed towards a third. So why would Gordon, who at the time was a senior executive at Boeing, take the job? Well, in his words, and I quote, at the time, it seemed like a stupid move. But those conditions gave Gordon the leeway to make big changes, changes that would turn Continental into a profitable airline within two years of his arrival, which might not seem that unusual for a business executive. But had you met Gordon back in the 1950s, you'd have never placed a bet on him. He only half-jokingly refers to himself as a teenage hoodlum, a poor student. So at age 17, he dropped out of high school. And of course, being as dumb as a box of rocks, I joined the Navy. So if you don't like home, you're really not going to like the Navy. Because <laughs> their, their, their discipline is 20 times more severe and quick than anything you'd find at home. How did you enlist? Did you just walk into the recruitment office in Austin and sign up? No, because I was only 16. So I, my cousin and I, who was the same age, we had this big idea. We joined the Texas Army Guard. And of course, that's a pretty loose organization. And they don't check much. So we walked in there and uh, filled out the paperwork and told them we were 18. And that was fine until my mother called him and said I was 16. And then that blew that up. <laughs> and so the week I turned 17... 
My mom came down to the one bedroom my brother and I shared. We had the family suitcase. And she says, what's that suitcase? And I said, I'm leaving for California. <laughs> she said, put it back up. And I said, Mom, it's not up to you. I've been out the window a lot. You know that. So you're not going to stop me. She said, Gordon, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get hitchhiked. You're going to be in jail. You run into bad people. And I pulled the papers out that the Navy had given me for her to sign. I said, I can go right into the Navy if you sign these papers. And she did. Wow. So you dropped out of high school, I think, right? This was 1958. Yeah, 11th grade. And you ship out to to California, to San Diego? Yeah, basic training. And when you get there, guy, they give you a whole day of exams to see what your IQ is, what your arithmetical aptitude, and whether you'd make a good sonar technician. So I, I unfortunately did really well in the IQ and the arithmetic. And so I qualified as an avionics technician. But that school was almost a year long. And I tried to get out of it, and they wouldn't let me out of it. <laughs> so I said, shoot, I'll just plunk out of school because I wanted to go to Bangkok and get drunk and have girls and stuff. And I'm talking to a friend. He worked on the flight deck. <laughs> he told me about the 18-hour days, spotting airplanes by hand, listening for the supervisor's whistle to blow, pull the chalk, reposition the airplane. I said, holy smokes, where do they get guys to do that? He said, the ones that flunk out of this school. <laughs> I, I graduated second in my class. I mean, <laughs> you know. Wow. I'm curious, though, Gordon. I mean, yeah. you were this undisciplined. You couldn't sit down and do your schoolwork. All of a sudden, you get to the Navy and you're like thriving and you're disciplined and you're doing the work and it's what explains it is it was it were you motivated by fear well i learned the hard way guy mostly uh i was on a legal hold out of boot camp for smoking in the hospital where i'd caught pneumonia you had pneumonia and you smoked in the hospital yeah, and you that's, got disciplined yeah. for the, okay sure right. because it's self defeating i mean you know they didn't want your ass in the hospital they want you to go to work right and right. when I finished school and was assigned to a squadron and were on their way out to sea, we worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Hmm. And it was this guy who kept bossing me around. And I said, you know, we were about 3 o'clock in the morning out in the North Atlantic. And I said, it's real dark out here, pal. And if you keep giving me this crap, I'm going to throw you over the side. Well, he turned me in. Hmm. And the chief calls me in the next morning. And he says, you get your gear and going. you're going to the galley for mess cooking, which is pots and pans and scrubbing, for 90 days. Wow. And he says, because you're a troublemaker. I said, I'm not a troublemaker. He said, Bethune, this is not a discussion. Get down there right now. And that's the way the Navy was. Wow. They, they didn't negotiate. I mean, in, in, this is probably, what, like 1959? Yep, 19... that's yeah, exactly okay. 59. I would venture to say that nobody on that ship – would have put their money on you being the CEO of Continental Airlines oh, yeah, one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, you had to be prescient <laughs> to do it. Well, what happened was in the Navy, this rating I had, which was an avionics technician, and I was an E-4 because everybody made E-4. It's called Petty Officer Third Class. Well, then right. the exams come out a year later because you're eligible for E-5. I'm the only guy that made it. I'm <laughs> the only guy that passed the exam. And they put me in charge of the second shift. Now, I was a hoodlum on the second shift, and now I'm in charge of these hoodlums that work with me. Huh. And what you do, you go out at 7 at night, and the chief and everybody comes on at 7 in the morning. All those airplanes better be fixed. And so I called the hoodlums together, and I said, the old milk in the job, so you'd work in twos, and let's say there's five airplanes that were down, and there's only four crews, so you, those whoever signed off the first airplane is going to get the fifth one. 
Yeah. As soon as soon as the fifth one was assigned, the other three guys would sign theirs off because they were just dodging uh, being assigned a second airplane. Right. And I said, we're not going to do that anymore. I said, when we sign the first one off, the second crew goes to the fifth one, and then the next crew gets split, and they go to the fifth one and the fourth one, and then we're going to end up where all eight of us are working on the last one, but nobody's screwing off till everybody screws off. And so every morning the chief would walk in. He was amazed because all the airplanes are fixed. That's because mm-hmm. they wanted them fixed. They went, As soon as everybody got finished, we all got to play pinochle for the rest of the shift. It sounds like the Navy kind of turned your life around. Sure, right? Like yeah. you really found your ability to be a leader. You obviously were good at what you did, and then you kind of matured and grew up in the Navy. That's a, that right? that's a very good observation. And what I would say, and I've talked publicly, the Navy, if you demonstrate some kind of performance expertise, they'll give you another harder job <laughs> where you might work for a company, successful company, for 10 years before you'd be looked at for promotion. The Navy, if you're good at something, they just encourage you and give you more. Did you? I mean, you you would end up spending twenty years in the Navy. Did you see yourself being a you know being in the Navy for the rest of your career for no. the rest of your life? No. I wanted to be a lawyer, and hmm. then when I got out, I went and finished school. I was a senior at A and M when, in fact, Branoff called me and said we need a engine manager, and we hear you're the right guy. And they offered me so much money, I left. So 1978, you retire from the Navy after a 20-year career. You're recruited to work for Braniff Airways. Yep. Because of your background as a mechanic, you were sort of an operations guy. Is that, is that uh, right? Yeah, all at 100% operations, 100%. I, I did, though, guy, understand how to read an income statement because I'd taken that in school. Hmm. Um, okay, so you you were at at Braniff Airways just uh, before deregulation, right? Right. Like, this is when the federal government like stopped controlling things like fares and, and routes and, and and it made the industry a lot more competitive. That was the cause of Brandis' demise was deregulation. And a lot of changes happened after that. Pan Am went broke, DWA went away, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Eastern, right? Right, all that uh, stuff. I remember, yeah. I remember as a kid flying yeah. on Pan Am and yeah. TWA. All gone because of managers that could not work in a competitive environment. When you were offered these jobs, first with Braniff and then with Western and then eventually with Piedmont, was it clear to you that you were kind of on the up and up, that you saw yourself um, rising up the, the executive ranks to eventually run an airline? Or, or, or was that not in the, in the cards, at least in your mind? Not, not in the cards in my mind. I, guy, I, the only job I ever applied for in my life was joining the Navy. <laughs> the rest of the time, I'd pick up the phone and say hello, and it would be someone talking about what I could do for them. To recruit you. Yes. If you do a really good job, it's not a big industry. People know that. They <laughs> see it in the statistics of how you do on time, how you do mechanically reliability. I mean, there's lots of ways to measure success, but it isn't your you know delightful personality. It's can you fix the same airplane for less money than brand X and Y Z. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, Gordon. I mean, you're you know, you you are an operations guy. You know how to get aircraft fixed and up and running and back into the fleet. What did you see at Braniff that they were doing wrong? Thick bureaucratic overhead, a lot of territorialism, a lot of silos, that kind of things. They're they're not all in every good management book. 
but experiencing them teaches you better than maybe the book does. And quite frankly, they had an adversarial relationship with their unionized workforce, which hmm. which always puzzled me because I, I didn't care if you were in a union or not. What I want you to do is fix this airplane, and I'm going to treat you right with dignity and respect. Yeah. So so after uh, Braniff, I guess you, you were recruited by Western Airlines, which at the time, this is the mid-'80s, was a pretty big carrier in, in the Western U.S., right? Right. I remember we had Western as the engineering and maintenance VP, they had cleaners. And I was a mechanic, and the cleaners cleaned up after the mechanics. And I said, we're not doing that. Mechanics clean up after their own stuff. Hmm. And one of the delegates came to see me and said, you know, Mr. Bethune, at Western, we pride ourselves. We could actually eat off the floor of the damn hangar. I said, get some plastic plates, pal. We're not hiring cleaners. You know, And then it's just loaded with examples of cost plus thinking that systematically had to be weeded out of the management, especially the middle management, and then, of course, get it into the employee ranks. You were eventually, this is around 88, you were recruited to uh, to go to Boeing to basically, and, and I guess eventually, oversee the production of, of two of their incredibly profitable, important aircraft, the 737, the 757. Yes, they recruited me, Guy, to be the customer service VP. In other words... Phil Condit was the most brilliant man I've ever met and was the head of Boeing at the time, at least where I would work. He wanted to know more about customers, and he saw what I did at Piedmont. We actually outperformed everybody, and he, he from his perch at Boeing, could see that. Why is – I mean, Boeing is manufactures planes. They manufacture right. the 737, the 757. Right. Why were they interested in what in, – in customer feedback? I mean, isn't that something an airline would be more concerned about? Well, Boeing provides field service engineering people to every airline to help you keep the airplanes running and, of course, gather information that they can use to improve reliability. You know, they were interested in seeing how can we do a better job to help our customers, and that's what Condit was looking for me to help him do. He once told me, Gordon, you're like a liver. We need you, but we're trying to reject you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm learning how this place works. He says, I don't want you to learn how this place works. I want you to teach us how you work. While I was running customer services, I sat in a room with Condit one day when a couple of other guys and I said, Phil, do you know what our customers do with these airplanes? And he looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? I said, if they're not fixing them, they're flying them. That's all they do. Hmm. He says, what's your point? I said, wouldn't you think it would be helpful for one of us to know how to do that in this room? He says, what do you want? I said, I want to go learn to fly the 767. Wow. He says, go do it. So I was in charge of pilot training. I mean, you know, so I went and put myself into the curriculum and got a type rating on the 757-767. And huh. so I, I actually was getting more involved in technical issues that related to reliability and dependability. I'm curious. I mean, having the fact that you were a mechanic and that even at this point, even as an executive in your late 40s at this point, if you had to, you could go fix a plane. You could go sure. down with the mechanics and fix it. And yeah. then you learned how to fly the plane so you could fly it. Right. Was that important to you to sort of signal to the people who worked for you that, like, you know, you understood what they did? Well, they loved it. Do you know, first of all, how many ex-mechanics are the CEO of major airlines? Right. None, none <laughs> right. right? So right. 
my mechanics identified with me. I mean, and I showed or epitomized what they could be if they wanted. So there was nothing wrong inherently about being a mechanic. If you wanted to be the CEO, you could do it. And, of course, flying the airplane kind of lets you identify with your own pilots who have that same type of They know you know. Did you ever fly a 757 or 767? Uh, like, did you ever actually fly the, the plane with people on board? Well, I would go up to Boeing and pick up airplanes, new ones, and I would invite maybe 60 of our best employees with their spouses or girlfriends. And we put them up in the Four Seasons, and, and Boeing just Elliott Bay overlooking the you know, private club tour of the factory. And then I, <laughs> yeah. I would fly the airplane back. You did fly those planes a couple times. You got to fly Oh, them. no, I've got lots of hours in the 5.7 and wow. 6.7, yeah. Wow. All right, so you're you're running this division for Boeing that's churning out the 737s, 757s, and at the time, I have to assume it was like print. Boeing was like almost like printing money. These planes were so yes. valuable, right? Um, yes. Did you just get a call from a recruiter um, looking for somebody to come to Continental Airlines? Well, Bob Ferguson was the CEO, and he had been the treasurer at Braniff, and he needed a president, chief operating officer. And he would call me, and I'd say, you know, Bob, as soon as I get that prefrontal lobotomy, I'll join you. But I'm not. <laughs> Boeing was the best company I ever worked for. I mean, yeah. you know, the check's cleared, if you can believe it. It's really nice. You have bonuses, and you fly first class as a corporate officer. And it was the most difficult decision I ever made. But they kept putting on compensation to where hmm. it just got to be, you know, go do it. Take a chance. So, yeah, so a big chance. 1994, you agreed to go be the COO, the chief operating officer and president of Continental. Correct. Um, let's just paint the picture for me of what you were about to enter. Because I think at that point, Continental had been through two bankruptcies. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Guy, the irony is they emerged from bankruptcy in 93. And of course, we all know that because we're in the industry and pay attention. And they had this huge celebration. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what are you celebrating? I mean, you emerged from bankruptcy... But a bankruptcy judge cannot fix your company. It can fix your balance sheet. It can restructure your debt. But if you're a crummy company and you don't change, you're a crummy company when you come out. And you're going to lose that money too. And that's kind of where they were. They had thought they had accomplished something when they had not transformed the company at all. It was a horrible, horrible place to work. All right, so February of 1994. Let me just see if I get this, if I have this right. Um, Continental at that point ranked dead last in on-time arrivals and lost baggage. Is that and right? cu- and customer satisfaction and general level of complaints. The four so, so, uh, four metrics so, DOT gives right. out every month. So they were the number one uh, airline in customer complaints. Absolutely, basically. Okay. Yeah. And I read you. You were quoted in an article saying that the this, the work environment was toxic. That people yeah. really, there were just people were pitted against each other. Um, divisions just hated each other. People weren't collaborating. What, what do you remember about arriving at that? What do you remember observing? Well, I had never been in an environment like that, but it wasn't their fault because they had been competed against each other for scarce resources during these reorganization process, and everybody was screwing everybody else to keep their job. It was a toxic environment. They had guards in the executive floors. It was not a place you would want to work because you couldn't rely on anybody having your back. It was horrible, as well as 
I guess the biggest thing I saw at coming to Continental was um, the, the flight attendants were the ones that were least appreciated of all, all the people. When, mm-hmm. when they are, in fact, your front line of customer satisfaction. Right. That's right. And so how crazy right. could that be, right? I'm, why, why would you disparage and treat them like nobody when they're everybody? Yeah. They're, they're who you count on. I knew I'd screwed up. You screwed up by accepting the job. Yeah, yeah, but I, you yeah. can't go back. You cut the limb off behind you. You know, I mean, if you leave Boeing, you're gone. And, and uh, yeah. my, my mistake. Your initial job was a COO and president, right? You yes, were not the yes. CEO initially. You would become eventually the CEO. Yeah, correct. Um, when you got there, um, what what were some of the things that that I mean? Because Continental was just hemorrhaging money. They were, I think they were like losing almost sixty million dollars a month. Um, yeah. Were their routes not efficient? Like what 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 was going on? I think it was all of that, but they were more of a cost-driven company. But I remember a discussion with Bob Ferguson. He was your predecessor. He was the guy right. who hired you. Yeah, and, and and a friend. And he said, Gordon, you've got to get more cost out of this airline. And I said, Bob, we're the lowest cost airline per available seat mile in, in America. What are you talking about? He said, no, goddammit, our... You know, you need to do more. And I said, Bob, you need to work on the revenue side of the ledger. We have poor pricing. We're not in the right markets. And he says, you know, don't argue with me. I want you to. And I said, Bob, we have to pay the people to deliver the bags, okay? You got to do some things. So Hmm. we had a very, very different approach. But if you're not sitting in the left seat, you're not the CEO. I'm the COO, but I'm just like the co-pilot. I'm not in charge. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. 
Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. I read that uh, at the time Continental was like running uh, planes up and down, for example, the East Coast. But but oftentimes they would land at airports that didn't um, – where there were no Continental mechanics or spare parts <laughs> for a Continental plane. So the plane might <laughs> land in a city and then had to fly to another city to get repaired or that mechanic had to fly in to fix the plane? Yes, and, and that's how preposterous things are. They, and it wasn't cost them so much money. Well, and so that ties back, Guy, into being a good operation exec. You don't allow that to happen. You don't spend that money. I mean, it's people that don't know what they're doing that do. Here's what happens. They get the cost or the price of the warehouse confused with the cost. Yeah. The price is only part of the cost. You know, you bought the cheaper place, but it's in the wrong place. And so your costs are going to be much higher. And that whole kind of lack of logical thinking things through is what destroyed Continental Airlines. And so right. the failing performance in the last quarter of 94, they decided one of our board members, our chairman, fired, he fired Bob and he walked down to my office and he said, you know, we've fired Bob and I want you to help me run this company for the next couple of weeks till our board meeting in November 2nd. And I said, I'll do that, but I want a chance to talk to the board about running this company myself. And he said, okay. <laughs> so I was a caretaker until we did the board. But in the meantime, I had taken a man who worked at Bain in our maintenance department, a consultant who was a smart man named Greg Brenman. And I worked out with him at my house, kind of like if we were in charge of this company, what would our business plan look like? We would have these meetings at my house over dinner and we drank wine, so we'd have to make notes because we'd forget the conclusions the next morning. But, you know, we were talking about a market plan and I said to Greg, I said, why don't we fly to places people want to go to? I said, write that down. That's so insightful. Mm. Well, we were going we were going to strategic places, not necessarily places where we had strength. So mm. we broke things down and we put names on part of the plan because we were not going to do the plan, the employees were going to do the plan, and they had to understand right. what we're doing. So we said fly to win was our market strategy. We introduced the term win, because they've never won anything. Hmm. And fly to places people want to go, be on time, you know, though not be on time, but have a product people want to buy, and deliver it in a consistent fashion with people who like to do it. And, and that's still, up until I left, that was still the, the market topic and you focused mm -hmm. on those things and so uh, we made that presentation they asked me and I was a board member they asked mm -hmm. me to step out of the room a hour later in the four seasons down here in Houston he comes he says uh, we've decided not to have a CEO mm -hmm. and I said David that wasn't our deal you said I get to speak to the board and I want our deal he said okay come in so I came in and I told the board I said if I can't do it and you don't think I'm the right guy, fine. Then you do it. So I said, one of you guys better do this because this place is not lasting over a couple of weeks. And so they asked me to leave the room. And then 45 minutes later, they called me back in and I had been unanimously elected chief wow. executive. You know, One of the first things, once they said, okay, I guess they were dead. They, they said, okay, we got to do this. You know, <laughs> We better just yeah. do it. One of the first things that you said needed to happen was, 
you had to shut down a bunch of routes. What were some of the unprofitable routes that you shut down? 20%, almost 20%, not quite, of our route system was cash negative, which meant, guy, you could have put the parking brake on, evacuated the airplane and save money, don't fly it. Wow. Like from, for example, like from where to where? Well, we would go from Winston-Salem to uh, West Virginia three times a day. You know, and I'm saying, well, whose girlfriend lives there? I mean, like, what are we going down there three times a day? Only two people wanted to go. So he said, it's strategic. It's not strategic. It's just a line on a map. Yeah, yeah. And and you made a, a, like a bunch of other changes too, right? Like, like changing th- even the airplanes that Continental flew. Yes, we took out the A300 airplane which we had 15 or so of those. This was the, uh, the Airbus. Yeah. They used to call it the A360 because they'd push it off the gate and taxi out and make a 360-degree turn, come right back, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't reliable. But right. we, we simplified our fleet. We got rid of 20% of the airplanes because we were flying to 20% cash negative. Hmm. We restructured our debt, but each one of those lessors, we sat down and made them whole. In helping them place the airplane, we took those Airbus airplanes to India and taught an airline how to fly the airplane in order to facilitate the lessor getting his money. Unlike the old Continental guy that would throw you the keys and say, screw you, see in court. So all hmm. of those people want to do business with us today because we honored and kept our word. All right, so you shut down these unprofitable routes, you get rid of the A300s, you try and uh, and by the way, at this Continental still had a bunch of different brands, right? Like Frontier and there were a couple of other air like smaller airlines. Well, they were the product of that over years. They had all been put into Continental livery. Crews would always ask each other where are you from Frontier, or, you know, New York Air. Mm. I said the only thing that you could tell that for sure was a Continental airplane is if the paint was peeling. That that was our uniform look. But we, in the first year I was CEO, painted every airplane that standard continental color. And we cleaned the airplanes three times more because I wanted our people to be proud of what they had in the service. We also implemented an on-time bonus, which said, if you get in the top five of the DOT ranked on time, I'll pay every employee in the company 65 extra bucks. Because we were spending $6 million bucks being late, I took half of it and give it to them. Wait a minute. It cost you $6 million in lost a revenue a month. So you said, I'll take half of that, $3 million, and distribute checks to everybody if we we're on time. Right. And people would say, well, what's 65 bucks? And I said, hell, if Donald Trump spots 320s in a five, he picks it up. Don't tell me it's nothing. Well, the first month, February... 95 we came in fourth place and everybody got a check so, so i'm trying i'm trying to figure this out i mean you you continental had like one of the worst on-time records uh, and within a year you got them to having one of the best on-time records so i, I presume like it's a combination of, of getting rid of unprofitable routes and and getting rid of the a300s and uh and i guess focusing on a few boeing models but that i mean that alone isn't going to turn around the on-time record like what what were the employees doing differently? What happened the old days, if you were a flight attendant leaving with a 200-seat airplane to New York at 2 o'clock from Houston, you'd look and say, I'm 25 meals short to the caterer. Who's our employee? Mm. He says, I don't have the 25 meals here at the terminal. I got to go to the kitchen. And that's going to take 25 minutes. She said, well, that's your problem, Bob. And we'd all sit there for the 25 minutes and be late. 
because right. they weren't. It's not her problem. Right. When she's not going to get her money, she punches them in the chest. Says, "Don't do this to me again." And she closes right. the door, and she gets some people to trade their food for booze. She solved the problem. We arrive in New York on time, and she gets her money. So that's how we got to be like, whose problem is it? It's our problem. So what you became is an inclusive company that had employees that felt just as much as being important as the CEO did and treated them the same way. And it's it's hard to explain the dynamics, but it's, it's like an explosion, a change overnight. And all you have to do... Is, is one, understand what needs to be done and help be helpful, but two, appreciate that there's a guy, like in your wristwatch, there's a part that you can't see. You know, I, one time a pilot asked why we were paying the people in the payroll an on-time bonus. And I held up my wristwatch. I said, which part of this watch don't you think we need? I mean, do you, <laughs> want, to get, do you want to get paid? I mean, we're a team. And everybody and every part of the watch adds to the value or it's not even there. You need to get out of your office, go down to that break room, which might be a baggage handling room, and tell that guy you know he's there and thank you. Thank you for that. I did a lot of that. And uh, that, that just changes attitudes. So in 1994, which was the first year you were at Continental, the, the company I read lost like $620 million. By 1999, Continental posted a record profit of, of $455 million. Yep. Yep. And I'm just curious. I mean, even though you had confidence in what you were doing and your and your turnaround strategy, um, you could see the results of it. Did you ever get like anxiety or have sleepless nights in the days before those those quarterly board meetings that you had to go and present for that entire week? Guy, after nine eleven, I had more sleepless nights than you mm. would imagine. Do you remember how many planes you had in the air that day? One hundred and fifty eight. One when they came, we were in a board meeting in in downtown Houston, and my ops exec says we got 158, and the FAA had ordered us to land at the nearest suitable airport, which meant I think the Tokyo plane landed somewhere in Wyoming, and we had people scattered everywhere. So September 11th, 2001, about up until that point, uh, Continental is very profitable, doing great. You end up uh, posting $95 million in losses in 2001, f- more than $400 million in 2002. How close was Continental to going under? It wasn't the end of the world, but I could see it from where I was. We lost 20% of our revenues overnight. I mean, we had to let 12,000 employees go. Wow. And there's a clause that says that their union labor contracts could be negated by a material adverse change, which is our, our, our country blew up. And so yeah. we could cut them out without paying their severance pay, without leaving their medical and travel benefits. Some of our competitors did put an adverse material change and saved a lot of money. And our financial people said, you know, we got to do this to stay alive. And I said, no, because the 38,000 people that we don't fire are going to be watching how we treat the 12,000 we do lay off. Yeah. We were able to raise some private equity, to restructure some debt, and we were one of the only airlines that got through that whole thing with no bankruptcy. None. American went, Delta went, United went, they all went, but we didn't. Wow. Was there a part of you that thought, we're not going to make this? I never believed we weren't going to make it. 
guy because we had a strong country and an economy that's going to recover. Those four days that we couldn't fly anywhere in the United States, if you went up to Alaska and went to Walgreens, there wasn't any aspirin on the shelf. You know why? Because the airplanes didn't come in. The yeah. people in Honolulu, the, the, there wasn't anybody in the hotels except the people who couldn't get out. So the economy of our country runs on air transportation. And so I knew that we had a value add to the economy of this country and Continental was going to play a role. We might have had some legal troubles on the way financially, but we were going to survive. And, and why were you so committed to avoiding bankruptcy protection? Like, like the, the other airlines went that route. Why were you so committed to not going that route? Well, we, we didn't want to do it. It's a horrible place to be. It causes you to do things you do not want to do. It's, cost, it's a very costful process. Hmm. The lawyers and the accountants make all the money. Don't, sure. don't, don't ever forget <laughs> it. And all that money really should be spent on your customers and your employees. So you had to shed like roughly 15% of your workforce really yeah. fast. Yes. And you wanted to make sure that they received benefits, um, severance and so on. So what happened? You got together with Larry, your your chief finance guy, and started to crunch numbers and figure out how you could do that and avoid bankruptcy? Well, he did that. But a lot of it was looking forward, Guy, on like how do we raise equity? How do how how do we raise debt? Is there ways that we can do? Well, we were a pretty good airline and with a good record, and so we were able very narrowly to take in enough revenue in cash to get through the expense crunch that we had without declaring bankruptcy. I mean, we had earned from that time back when we were going bankrupt in ninety four and ninety five, and I told you. We didn't screw any of our financial partners. We made everything right. That reputation and the subsequent 10 years of being a first-class airline causes people to have confidence in you and says, yeah, I'll lend them the money. I think by 2003, the company was back back in, in black, right? It was back in the right. black. It was profitable uh, We were again. very, very proud of that. Yes, sir. What happened? Was it a combination of just good decisions and luck or or the the economy was was kind of picking up why why did what what, what accounts for that because the other airlines I'm, I'm assuming were not yet profitable by 2003 there's no alternative but to be a really good airline and one that people want to fly on and and we did it because we had employees that wanted to fix the airplane they wanted to make the flight you know if you have a workforce that really wants to help you, you, you have a tremendous advantage. If you have an ambivalent workforce, you probably, they don't get in your way, but they don't help. If you have a hostile workforce, it's going to cost you at least 15%. Yeah. 2004, the stock price over the course of your tenure had gone from like $2 a share to $50 a share by the time you left. You stepped down in 2004. Um, from what I've read, it was sort of a, a kind of a devil's bargain that, that there was tension between you and some board members. And in the end, um, basically, you and those board members both agreed to just step down to leave. Did you want to leave in 2004? Yes. I, I had been there 10 years, which I think as a CEO, that's kind of all you really got. You need to fresh thinking. Larry was certainly right. ready. Number two, I had the type of people on the board were private equity and they had other interests than our interests. Yeah. And I knew if I left that they would re 
take over the company. I needed to get those guys off the board before I left. So I yeah. made a bargain that you guys leave now and I'll leave at the end of the year, which is like 10 months later. Do you think that, I mean, it's a bit of a trope, but do you think that in general, when, when you've got private equity folks heavily invested and involved in a company, they don't care as much about the employees or the customers of the company that, that they're focused primarily, I'm assuming, on profit? I think yes, although I would have to say some of them know that the way to get those profits is to have good employees. In other words, yeah. the way you get to be really profitable is have a really good company as defined by your customers and your employees. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think anyone who's experienced like their favorite burger joint, right, or some restaurant or, or cafe or something that they go to, and it's great and they love the food, and then one day they notice that that burger joint is all over the place. It's It's gone everywhere, and you yeah, realize yeah. it's been purchased by private equity, and then you start to notice the quality goes down. It's not the same anymore. Because those morons start looking at, gosh, how many dollars per burger is this, and we got, you know... They were doing that at Continental, you know, trying to make things cheaper. And I said, you can make a pizza so cheap, nobody will eat it. Yeah. And you can make an airline so cheap, nobody will fly it. I mean, to crow about taking an olive off a salad, we're saving $200,000 a year. That doesn't take a lot of brains to take an <laughs> olive off a salad. As a matter of fact, as a consumer, I'm saying, where's my salad? You know, what are you doing to my salad? When you left Continental, it was in a strong place and a stable company and, of course, a few years later merged or was kind of taken over, I think, by, by United. How did you feel about Continental essentially no longer being Continental? Well, I had tried while I was there to merge with United. It was the perfect partner. We had Latin America and Europe. They had all of Asia and the West Coast and Chicago. We had New York. And so putting those two together was like two and two makes six. Hmm. I was never able to do it because the management said, if we do merge, we want to run the company. I told them, you can barely run water. I'm not going to let you have our company. <laughs> you know? Today, United has the Continental logo, right? I mean, it's that the globe yeah. is the Continental logo, but it is United. Continental is no longer. Um, Correct. Is a part of you sad about that, that that name is gone? Oh. It's sad that that name is gone because we were often a first-place airline, very often. It's horribly sad to me. A lot of the things that you've done since you've left um, running a big company um, as a CEO has been to just mentor people and to talk about how to think about career choices. And one of the things that I love um, is a piece of advice that you give to young people coming out of college. You say... Go work for a failing company. Don't go work for Apple or Google, but work for a company that is is in turmoil. Or a new company. If you're joining Apple, I mean, not, not to denigrate Apple because they got brilliant people, but you're just one of 10 brilliant people in the room. It'd be better if you're like in one or two or none brilliant people in the room when you walk in at a failing company because they're starving for ideas on how to survive. And if they throw you, like I told you, the Navy would give you responsibility at an early age. If you did well, they'd give you some more. And that's mm -hmm. the way those companies work. New ones and failing ones will give you unlimited leash as long as you're bringing home the bacon. Hmm. Yeah. 
Do you feel like you were born a leader with leadership skills and capabilities and qualities, or do you think that you actually learned how to how to do that? You know, I I don't know the answer. I'm not smart enough. I know that I learned a lot from others. And, you know, we all of us appreciate a good boss. Well, take notes on what that means to you. So if you ever get to be a boss, pull your notes out and do that. When you fly today, uh, do you just go for the cheapest ticket or do you are you loyal to a particular <laughs> airline? <laughs> the good thing about being a lifetime in the airline is you can have all the free tickets you want. So I've got plenty of free tickets. But I, I love flying United because the United people – are, they're great people. There's nothing wrong with the people. There was nothing wrong with the people at Continental when they were on the bottom. I mean, we took 640 loss to a plus 225. We did that with the same people in the same airplane, so it wasn't them. It never is. Yeah. And so you always got to go back and look at this, who's driving, who's in charge, and that's where you're going to have to make the change. That's Gordon Bethune. He retired from Continental Airlines in 2004. And since then, he's continued to mentor, to serve on boards, and periodically he appears on CNBC talking about the airline industry. Most recently, about the troubles with Boeing's 737 MAX airplanes. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.